0: Chapter 6 of Italian Life and Legends by Anna Cora Mollet Ritchie. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Kelly Taylor. Chapter 6 Dante. July 3rd, 1865. Is Dante to be allowed to rest at last? are we to have any rest from Dante? Italy has been Dante mad for a couple of months. Dante's glorification has been the signal for the most brilliant extravagance and superb festivity. After a lapse of six centuries, a frantic desire to pay homage to their great poet has suddenly stirred the pulses of the Italian people into jubilant enthusiasm we do not venture upon the suggestion on this side of the ocean but we are almost brave enough to whisper to our friends on the other that although it is just possible a genuine and intense appreciation of the writings and character and political services of dante may have made the nation seize with such wild avidity upon the opportunity to do him honor it is even more probable that the Italian holiday-loving heart was simply overjoyed to snatch at any excuse for a series of fits. The three-day solemnities at Ravenna have just terminated. Dante's recovered bones have been finely sepulchred with impressive pomp and ceremony. Their discovery, made a little more than a month ago, is somewhat singular. The exiled Dante died at Ravenna, September fourteenth, 1321. His unquiet bones seem to have passed through extraordinary vicissitudes. A few years after Dante's death, when Cardinal Bertondo del Poghetto, moved by pious wrath, determined that the poet's remains should be burned as those of a heretic they were stolen by some franciscan friars tradition says they were restored to their original resting-place when the danger was over in fifteen nineteen the florentines supplicated pope leo x to have the poet's venerated bones brought to florence dante's birthplace as michelangelo had offered to sculpture a sepulchre worthy to be their last receptacle the people of ravenna cried out against this demand and the bones once more mysteriously disappeared it is not definitely stated when or how they were restored but since they were destined to vanish again they must have been replaced when cardinal Corsi, in sixteen ninety two attempted to repair the chapel of dante the friar suspected that his object was to obtain possession of these valued relics, and once more they became invisible. Their repository was not again discovered until the 27th of May, 1865, just after the great Dante Festival celebrated in Florence. The municipality of Ravenna having approved the program for that festival, and wishing to do further honor to the poet, ordered that the chapel of Dante should be opened and repaired. The masons employed on the work found, embedded in a wall, from which they had removed a few stones to fasten a pipe, a badly made firewood box. It was opened by them an inscription within testified that the bones it contained were those of dante placed there by friar antonio santi eighteenth of october sixteen seventy seven the archives of the franciscan college were examined and a record of this act made by friar antonio santi was found here was a glorious occasion for another festa and. The 24th, 25th, and 26th of June were set apart for Dante's final obsequies. Military salutes, processions, bands of music, orations, and banquetings formed part of the ceremony. The bones were carried to the temple of Bracia forte upon a white satin cushion in a crystal urn covered with a white veil. When the veil was lifted, the syndic of Rabina made a touching address and then placed a wreath upon the urn a second wreath was offered by the syndic of florence no priests were permitted to officiate their ire was very naturally excited and they pronounced the whole proceedings sacrilegious the three days national dante festival in commemoration of the 600th anniversary of his birth, took place in Florence on the 14th, 15th, and 16th of May, 1865, and has never, it is said, been surpassed in magnificence, at least in Italy. It will seem strange to our American readers that Sunday was the day upon which the festival commenced, but that sacred day is usually chosen by italians for the fittest for a jubilee a colossal statue of dante was to be inaugurated on the piazza santa croce the piazza was richly adorned with decorative paintings illustrative of incidents in the life of the poet garlands of laurel and flowers trophies banners emblematical devices and rich hangings Indeed, the whole city was hung with flags, and upon those houses in which great celebrities have lived or died or were born, their names were inscribed, surrounded with garlands and trophies. The procession was formed in the Piazza Santo Spirito at ten o'clock in the morning. Men and women marched bareheaded in the broad sunshine. Conspicuous among the most renowned, moved the great Restori, the most distinguished actress of italy she was arrayed in a flowing robe of gold-coloured silk which swept the streets and wore a crown of gold upon her stately head with a long rich white veil her noble carriage her graceful regal gait and her handsome features won general admiration salvini and rossi the two greatest italian actors walked by her side a superb banner representative of the dramatic art of which they each held a ribbon was borne before them when the procession had assembled in the piazza santa croce the solemn bell of the Piazza vecchio sounded then followed superb music by the band of the national guard king victor emmanuel gave the signal for the unveiling of Pazzi's statue of dante and an oration was pronounced the statue is severely criticized on the one hand and highly praised on the other but it is sufficient that Pazzi, the sculptor is a native of ravenna for him to excite the jealousy of the florentines it is said he has made dante frowning upon ungrateful florence the king knighted Pazzi for his work in the evening the whole city was illuminating with a dazzling brilliancy of which no language can give an adequate conception a triple row of lights gleamed along the whole length of the arno and reflected a blaze in the water the bridges the pitti palace the palazzo vecchio the duomo baptistry Giotto's capanilla were literally in the language of aurora lee drawn in fire all florence from its princes and potentates down to the lowest cantadini poured into the streets the order and quiet preserved were wonderful great as was the crowd there was no jostling no pushing no rudeness no loud talking The hum of low voices and the sound of music alone broke the stillness. The finest band and choir were to be heard in the Piazza Santa Croce. Upon the second day, the celebration was continued in the Academy of Fine Arts. Several original poems on Dante were delivered, and Ristori read, with great effect, Victor Hugo's letter to the mayor of Florence. A Dante concert was given in the evening at the Pagliano Theater. On the third and last day, the festivity began with a distribution of prizes to women of good conduct on the Piazza Santa Croce. During the day, there was a festa for the populace and a mock tournament on the Casina and a boat race on the Arno. At night, a ball for the people in the open air under the Uffizi. The festa closed with the most gorgeous tableaux vivants, accompanied by music and recitation at the Pagliano Theater. The magnificence and artistic beauty of these tableaux were unrivaled. They represented scenes from the works of Dante, chiefly from his Divina Commedia, the inferno with all its horrors and tortures as dante had fantastically described them was illustrated by a series of pictures exhibited by fiery red electric light purgatory with its milder suffering was shown by a cold blue electric light but the electric light shed a golden blaze of glory when heaven with dante led by beatrice amidst groups of angels and apostles with the blue vault and bright stars and fleecy clouds above them were revealed the tableau of francesca de rimini was preceded by a recitation powerfully given by the great restori declamations by salvini and rossi preceded several of the tableaux it was a great source of pride and congratulation by the american visitors in florence that an exquisite translation of the divina Commedia by our own longfellow richly bound was sent by the poet himself through the minister mr marsh to the mayor it is also gratifying to remember that the full-length portrait of dante by giotto in the chapel of the palace of the podesta which, on the occasion of this kind, when the city swarmed with strangers, was an object of especial interest, might have still remained hidden by a coat of whitewash which had concealed it for generations, but for the energy of our countryman, Mr. R. H. Wilde, assisted by a few English and American gentlemen. The whitewash was, in some places, an inch thick and it is not definitely known how long the portrait had worn this unseemly white veil the day before the festival instituted by the authorities commenced it may be said to have been inaugurated at the english dramatic drawing-room by an admirable lecture delivered by mr montgomery stewart correspondent of the london morning post the national ovation has caused italy we might almost say Europe, to be flooded with pamphlets, poems, sonnets, discourses, and books on Dante, his life and times. Certainly no poet ever won a more bounteous tribute of venerating admiration. We quote an illustrative passage from a highly interesting volume written by a Greek lady noted for her beauty and talents, Madame Albania Minati. She says, when we have granted to Dante his full share of weakness, passion, inconsistency, and even bitterness, enough remains of heroic strength and unquenchable ardor in the pursuit of virtue to ensure Dante, our Tuscan father, the admiration of all ages as the prince of Christian poets and the foremost of all those who have sought to guide mankind through suffering and through faith, to their eternal home, having given this quotation, we are bound to confess that we do belong to the number of Dante's worshippers. While we admit that he has claims to high rank as poet, that he gave to Italy her language, that he united wonderful imagination to vast scientific knowledge and poetical wisdom that Although he was a dreamer, he showed an acquaintance with scientific facts been supposed to be unknown and which seen prophecies as they were recorded by his pen and while our deepest sympathy is excited by his misfortunes and the harsh ingratitude which he received at the hands of those whom he had so largely benefited while we grieve over his sad exile his lonely wanderings his poverty which he declares caused him almost to live on alms while we are moved by his yearnings for his native city and his sad death at ravenna in short while we admit his mighty genius and his heavy sorrows we cannot feel that his character commands that mount of veneration which it so lavishly receives he is called the most christian of poets the most high-minded and noble and large-hearted of men etc etc but this christian poet cherished inveterate and deadly hatreds, wholly inconsistent with the teachings of Christianity, incompatible with the character of a Christian. And when he describes the Inferno, the Christian poet takes care to give all his enemies a conspicuous place there, and to depict their tortures with savage triumph. His egotism has scarcely a parallel in biography. He himself, his emotions his aspirations his adventures his self laudation are constantly themes of his muse he is called the true lover poet who has deified the passion of love in the style of his beatrice but what is the matter-of-fact history of that same passion He had very little beyond a bowing acquaintance with his idolized Beatrice. Indeed, her ceasing to salute him at one time affords the opportunity for a frantic burst of poetic agony. He was nine years old when he first met Beatrice. She had just entered her ninth year. During the next nine years, he only saw her by chance glimpses in his vita nova he thus describes their first meeting nine times from the hour of my birth had the heaven of light returned as it were to the same point in orbit when the glorious lady of my thoughts appeared for the first time before my eyes by many she was called beatrice by some she was known by another name she was then of such an age that the starry heavens had moved the twelfth part of a degree towards the earth during her lifetime, so that she appeared to me about the beginning of her ninth year, and I saw her about the end of my ninth year. She appeared to me in the dress of a noble color, a subdued and becoming blood-red, and a sash and ornaments suited to her very youthful years. At that moment... I speak the truth, the spirit of life, which dwells in the most secret chamber of the heart, began to tremble so violently as to be frightfully visible in the smallest pulses of my body, and with faltering voice said these words, Behold a God stronger than I, whose coming will subdue me. Of his second meeting, he says, when exactly so many days had elapsed after the above-described apparition of this most noble lady as were necessary to complete nine whole years it chanced that on the last of these days this most admirable person appeared to be an address of the purest white between two noble ladies older than herself and passing along the street she turned her eyes to the spot where, trembling with fear, I stood, and with an ineffable courtesy, which now has its reward in eternity, saluted me in so striking a manner that I seemed to reach the very extreme of happiness. This hour at which I received this most bewitching salutation was precisely the noon of the day and as this was the first time that her words had reached my ears the pleasure which i received was such that i quitted the company as it were in a state of intoxication and retiring to my solitary chamber i sat down to meditate on this most courteous lady during my meditation a sweet sleep came over me in which appeared a wonderful vision the vision is minutely described and is followed by his first love sonnet. When the father of Beatrice died, Dante's sympathy for her sorrow was so great that he fell ill, and on the ninth day of his indisposition he saw a vision of the death of Beatrice herself. Nine was to him the most sacred of numbers, and when Beatrice dies, he says, according to the mode of reckoning in Italy, her blessed soul departed in the first hour of the ninth day of the month and according to the computation in syria she died in the ninth month of the year for the first month is there tasman Tizri, which is our october and according to our calculation she departed in that year of our calendar, that is, in the year of our Lord, in which the perfect number has been nine times completed in the century in which she was born in the world, and she was a Christian of the thirteenth century. The following may be a reason why this number was so propitious to her, since, according to Ptolemy and the belief throughout Christendom, there are nine stars which move and according to the common belief these stars have an influence on things here below according to their positions this number was propitious to her in giving it to be understood that at the time of her generation all the nine morning stars were in the most perfect conjunction at beatrice's death his vehement anguish was so overpowering that he addressed an extravagant letter to the potentates of the earth informing them that the whole city of florence was widowed by her loss but this is the embroidered state of the tapestry of his love history the reverse does not altogether correspond strange to say we hear nothing of his ever having sought beatrice in marriage nor of his sufferings when at the age of twenty a bridal ring was placed upon her delicate finger by another hand after her death which he so violently laments he declares that he consecrates his whole life to her memory and that he hopes to speak of her as no woman was ever spoken of before and somewhat later he bitterly reproaches himself in the convento because he is attracted to a certain lady by her compassionate looks and earnest sympathy for his grief when he finds his thoughts turning too often to the gentle stranger he upbraids himself for the temporary solace as though the pleasurable emotion were a crime yet in 1293 only three years after the death of beatrice he marries gemma danotti and in the course of time becomes the father of seven children surely this gemma must have been one of the most patient forbearing and unjealous of womankind for dante continues to rave of his beloved beatrice and his writings continue to be full of his personal experiences. He continues to admit the reader into the inter-sanctuary of his soul. He continues to throw out acclamations of self-thinking, self-adoring, through poor Gemma, and his quiver with the seven arrows are ignored. In the purgatorio alone one passing allusion is made to his family. All that was real and tangible had not the same actual existence to him as that which was ideal or visionary. The uncomplaining woman who sat by his hearth and cradled his children in her arms had less positive existence than the departed Beatrice, whom he could scarcely be said to have known, a proceeding which a prosaic friend of ours quaintly pronounces poetic not proper besides this boccaccio tells us that beatrice was by no means the poet's only flame one of the objects of his admiration has come down to us as Gentuca of lucca sometimes called pogoletta another is said to have dwelt among the green hills of the Casentino, and seems to have been beloved in spite of a goitre and to each of these fair ones the true lover poet wrote impassioned sonnets he gave to his daughter the name of beatrice perhaps in remembrance of his first love whom he wished the world to believe his only love Of this daughter, little is known. She was a nun in the convent at Ravenna, at the time of her father's death. His wife he never saw after his exile. After calling to mind these rather startling little biographical facts, are we not justified in saying that, although Dante was a great genius, he was by no means the most Christian of poets, the noblest of men and the truest of lovers heaven defend the young maidens of the present generation from such a love or the destined wives from such a husband chapter six